0: Happy Memorial Day, everyone. I'm grateful that you guys are are here, that you chose to turn out to River West today. My name's Christopher. I'm one of the pastors here at River West as the joy of jumping back in to to Luke's gospel this morning. Uh, If you'd like a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Our usher team is going to come around and and put the word in your hand um, this morning. As a community, we have been on a journey For over a year now in Luke's gospel, we have been diving into this incredible gospel account. And as we have encountered Christ's life and his teachings and his miracles, it has been an incredible journey thus far. That has been challenging, it's been intense, and we're going to experience more of the same this morning as we continue our journey in this letter This morning, as we continue our study, we're going to examine two incidents where Jesus encounters people who are gripped by fear and they're royally freaking out, which I think is apropos, given that we're experiencing actually a lot of fear in our culture right now. You know, it's interesting because sociologists and psychologists are actually finding and noting that fear has become one of the most prevalent, pervasive, and formative emotions in American culture over the last decade. And there's some people that have been studying that because there's always people that study our our psychosis. And so at Chapman University, they have been doing a study trying to examine the roots of American fear. And they've published this study, this in-depth examination of our fears. And they found something very, very interesting. That over the last five years, our fears have become very, very similar. And they have been relegated. In 10 domains. Would you like to know what Americans are freaking out about? They made an infographic. Here's the top 10 domains of fear that tend to impact people and stir up anxiety, government government corruption, drones, gun control, immigration issues, man-made disasters, bio-warfare, terrorism, nuclear attacks. Are we having fun yet? Personal future, dying, illness, running out of money, unemployment, natural disasters, earthquakes, droughts, floods, hurricanes, technology, AI, robots taking over the world, daily life, romantic rejection, ridicule, talking to strangers, social media, thank you. Twitter. Environment, global warming, overpopulation, judgment of other, social appearance, weight, age, race, gender, identity, personal anxieties, tight spaces, public speaking, clowns, (laughs) vaccines. Crime and murder, rapes, that burglary, fraud, and identity theft. You gotta love on an infographic. It just throws it all out there, everything that we freak out about, and you have clowns and nuclear bombs in the same infographic. I love that. That's just great. But all jesting aside, we are living in uncertain times. And if you're paying attention and taking into account what's happening in our world, It's very, very easy for fears to well up, and we also live in a time where certain interest groups actually exploit our fears, exacerbate our fears. So there's a lot of fear-mongering and capitalizing on our fears in our culture because fear sells. Fear fear is very powerful. One of the most powerful human emotions. And over time, if you're not careful, if we allow fear to take root in our lives no matter what domain it comes from, it has a way of choking out everything good in our lives. Doesn't it? Fear has a way of smothering and choking out, as we saw actually in last week's parable of the sower and the ground. Fear can choke out things that are fruitful and good, our peace, our joy, our hopes and dreams, our connection, With others and sense of community, and ultimately, our faith and confidence in God and the scriptures. So this morning, before we wade into Luke's gospel account together, I want you to take a moment to consider and reflect on your own heart. In your life right now, what are you afraid of? What are you most afraid of? What are your most pronounced fears? What are the fears that are weighing you down and following you around like a stray cat in life? They nag you. You wake up with them and you wrestle to sleep at night. What are those fears? Now, for some of you, I know right now as your pastor that you're smack dab in the middle of some gnarly storms. Everything from from health crises to trying to figure out how you're going to pay the electric bill and stay afloat financially. But for others, the presence of fear might not be as pronounced or as easy to identify. And yet for some reason, there's a knot in your stomach that won't go away. That you've learned to accept so that on the surface, you look put together. You guys look great, by the way. You look great. You guys look okay. But I know there's many of you, where that knot in your stomach, your secret fear is that you're one crisis away from unraveling. And so you came here. You may look good on the surface, but inwardly you're in knots. I have good news for you this morning as we open up. Luke's gospel, we're going to take a look at two incidents where Jesus calms a storm and he heals a man who's tormented by fears. And I believe that Jesus is going to meet you right where you're at and set you free this morning from some fears that followed you in here today. So with that, open, if you would, to Luke's gospel account to chapter 8, And we're going to pick up in verse 22 where we left off last week in this letter. One day, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said in a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. When the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed, and in his right mind, they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is God's word. And we have our handful this morning. This is an intense story. There's so much action in this story, but both incidents, all the intensity, is to drive home a lesson about how Jesus is sovereign over fear. So what Luke is going to do in a masterful storytelling way, he's going to reveal three things if you're taking notes this morning and following along. He's going to show us three things from this story to help us overcome. Our fears. He's going to use these stories to show us the root from which our fears originate, the realm in which our fears operate, and the remedy to our fears. So the root of our fear, the realm of our fears, and the remedy to our fears. First and foremost, the gospel writer Luke begins with this story of a boat ride that goes terribly awry in order to expose the root from which our fears come from. Now, if you were here last week for Adam's sermon, you know that this incident in Jesus' life and ministry comes on the heels of a very demanding time. Jesus has been going around, and from dawn to dusk, he's been teaching, he's been healing, he's been ministering to the crowds. So here's Jesus, if you can imagine, at the end of a very heavy day of teaching and ministering, proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven had broken into our world, and he's just flat worn out. So he gets in the boat with his disciples and said, let's get away. Let's go to the other side of the lake. Now, when Luke makes reference to the other side of the lake around the Sea of Galilee, he's referring to the eastern side, the eastern shore, what would today be called the Golan Heights on the Syrian-Israeli border. Now, due to its proximity to Mount Hermon, which which is 10,000 feet above sea level, and the Sea of Galilee is one of the lowest places on earth. What happens is because you have that sharp contrast between Mount Hermon and the Sea of Galilee is that in that region, storm clouds can roll in without much warning whatsoever in Jesus' day, and still to this day, it's a place that gets a lot of really, really intense storm activity. So as Jesus' disciples set out in the calm of evening to cross the eastern shore with their rabbi, all of a sudden, Luke tells us in verse 23 that a great windstorm came down on the lake. Now, this must have been some kind of storm because bear in mind that the disciples that are with Jesus and keeping him company in the boat have spent their whole life on the water. They're seasoned fishermen and sailors. And Luke shows them freaking out, bailing water and saying, we're all going to die in this story. Now, what's almost comically out of place in the story that Luke records for us is that right there in the midst of this raging storm, where's Jesus? What is Jesus doing? He's napping. That's what Jesus is doing. So you can imagine the scene as the boat is rapidly filling with water and on the verge of being capsized and sinking, Peter looks over at Andrew and says, would someone please wake up Jesus? This incident must have made a lasting impression upon Jesus' disciples because all of Jesus' disciples, with the exception of John, include this story. And while Luke's account, I love how Luke goes in and tells us what happened on the lake that day, Mark's rendition Of this incident includes a detail that not only tells us what happened on the lake during that storm, but what was going on within the disciples' hearts as the boat was filling with water. So turn to the left, if you would, to Mark's Gospel, chapter 4. One of the helpful things as you're reading through Luke's Gospel account is when you come to these stories, to stop when you come to a story like this and make a comparison and see how the other, other gospel writers tell this, this story and this incident because many times they'll capture details that actually sharpens our eye to what's really happening beneath the surface of these stories. And so in Mark chapter 4, if you look at verses 37 and 38, Mark records the same, same incident, but he includes a detail that I think is really, really insightful. So look at this. In verse 37, Mark tells us, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, that is Jesus, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? You almost note in this account a, a sense of irritation or anger in the disciples when they wake up Jesus and essentially rebuke him and say, Teacher, do you not care? So the disciples, they, they come to Jesus in the midst of their crisis not only to ask for help, but they're upset with Jesus' apparent indifference to their perilous situation. And as near-death experiences, many times strip away all the veneer. They just speak from their fear in their heart and they say, Lord, do you not care that we're about to die? God, do you not care? You ever had one of those moments? I'm sure if you have, have taken your spiritual journey Seriously, there has been a moment where you have doubted the care and provision of God Almighty in your life. There you are in the midst of a storm and you're praying and you're crying out. But the more that you cry out to God, the more that he seems distant and silent In fact, as you ratchet up your prayers and ask others to pray in the midst of your storm, the more it seems to rage. And so confusion and doubt sets in. And this is where the enemy speaks an insidious lie that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And he whispers a lie and says, God doesn't really care about you. He doesn't care how this lie slips into our lives when we're in the midst of storms. And we wonder in our hearts, Lord, do you really care? I can't seem to find a job. Lord, do you not care that my marriage is hurting right now? Lord, do you not care that my son or daughter is turned away from you and hardened their heart? Lord, do you not care that this person I love is getting sicker and they're suffering right now? Lord, do you not care? Friends, you need to know something. The root of all our fears is connected to a belief that God is indifferent and asleep at the helm of your life. That God is either not loving enough, not powerful enough, or not good enough to stretch out his hand and intervene when we're in the midst of storms. Ironically, the very reason that Jesus was able to sleep while the storm raged was because he trusted in his father's sovereign care for him. The reason that Jesus can lay his, down, his head down on a cushion and sleep in the midst of the storm is he believes what the psalmist said about the character and nature of, of God, that he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, that God is not asleep at the helm Of our world, and Jesus wholeheartedly trusted that he could take a nap while his father spun the cosmos and cared for him. This week I had an opportunity on Tuesday to meet with with a young guy that I love, that I shared his story, his family's journey with their youngest son Bo was diagnosed with leukemia several weeks ago when I preached. We were getting an update, and I was meeting early in the morning to to pray with Lance before his son Bo went back to OHSU to receive his second round of chemotherapy. Bo is eight months old, and watching an eight-month-old baby go through just just the effects of of leukemia, it's, 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 it's rocked. Um, their world and, and their life. But in the midst of this storm, it's been incredible to see just the faith that my friend Lance and his wife Chloe have in the midst of this storm. There was a point in our conversation where Lance allowed me and gave me permission to share this with you so that you can pray for Bo and pray for their family. There was something he said that just rocked me to the core. He said, you know, my wife, Chloe, and I, part of what we've had to do in our journey is, is really kind of think out our worst-case scenario and bring that before the Lord in faith to really make it through this storm. And I expected him to go on to say, you know, that the worst-case scenario is that his son would receive treatment and just not get better. But he, he surprised me when he said, you know, our worst-case scenario actually is that, that what we're going through, it would actually allow us to drift away from our faith in Christ. It would put a wedge between, between us and the Lord. And as we considered that worst-case scenario, we've already decided that that's not going to happen, that that's not going to happen. And so regardless of, of the outcome of this storm, we're, we're trusting the Lord. And we already know he's sovereign over our worst-case scenario. That just, just humbled me as a pastor to see how this storm stripped away everything and just their faith in that moment that the Lord can be trusted, that he's good. Friends, in the end, the storms of life, they have a way of unearthing and revealing what we place our faith in what we put our faith in. This is why Jesus, as his disciples wake him up and they're freaking out, respond by asking actually a healing question. He looks at them and he says, where is your faith? Where is your faith? That's a healing question. You see, although Jesus' disciples had witnessed Jesus open the eyes of the blind, even raise a widow's son from the dead, they're in the midst of the storm. They're reeling, their reality has been upended. And now that their life is on the line, this storm has revealed how feeble their faith truly was. Thankfully, Jesus in grace has this uncanny way of using the very same storms that we fear to grow our faith in him. And that's exactly what happens in Luke's gospel account. Look at verses 24 and 25 and how Jesus responds to his disciples after they wake him up from his nap. In verse 24, and they went, they woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm and he said to them where is your faith and they were afraid and they marveled saying to one another who then is this that he commands even winds and water and they obey You see, the disciples have gone from reeling in fear to witnessing the sheer power of Jesus Christ over all creation, and their emotional experiences move from terror to wonder because Jesus, in faith, does not want his timid disciples to live in fear or to buy into the lie that the God of the universe is asleep at the helm of the boat. Friends, if you hear anything this morning from this message, would you hear this? God is not indifferent and asleep in the midst of your storm. He loves you. He's committed to being with you. And his loving care is fiercer than any gale force this broken world can throw at you. If you believe that deep down, no matter how much the winds and the waves may rage against your life, you'll be able to sleep and know that you're going to be okay because Jesus Christ, Lord of all, is in the boat with you. Can I get one amen? Amen. Amen. He's in the boat with you. You might have a lot of things in the boat with you. You might be royally freaking out. Fear might be in the boat with you. Cancer might be in the boat with you. But if Jesus is in the boat with you, you're going to make it through the storm and you're going to be okay. Take heart. Know that. Now, because it's much more natural for you and I to live in fear than to live by faith in the supremacy and sovereignty of Christ, our Lord, Luke is going to answer the, the question that the disciples pose. Who then is this Jesus? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Who is Jesus by showing us a Christ that is not only able to calm the wind and the waves and the storm with a word, but to also calm a raging soul as well. So let's continue our story and look at verses 26 to 29 again and watch how the story, the narrative flow, is going to move from the natural realm to the supernatural realm, from the wind and the waves on the sea to a man with a tormented soul. In verse 26, Luke tells us, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said in a loud voice, "'What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God?' I beg you, do not torment me, for He had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Now Luke moves us from the wind and the waves in the natural realm, where Jesus is Lord over natural things, to, in this story, showing us this man who's suffering under the destructive powers of hell and these demonic spirits, to actually open our eyes to the spiritual realm in which our fears operate. That's the whole point of this second lesson. In all the gospel accounts, Jesus' calming of the storm is followed by this healing of the demoniac. And Luke is trying to show us a spiritual realm where there are actually destructive powers that are set against God and humanity. This realm, Paul talks about this spiritual realm in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when he tells us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, natural things, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces... Of evil in the heavenly places. So, now, in order to open our eyes to the reality and the presence of this spiritual realm and how it operates in our lives, how it uses and exploits our fears, Jesus doesn't do something that we might expect him to in our Western culture. (laughs) Jesus doesn't philosophize or speculate or give a lecture on the presence of spiritual evil. He doesn't do that. He could, but he doesn't. Instead, he shows us a man whose life has been decimated by demonic powers. He puts a personal face to the powers of darkness that wreak havoc in our world. And so he shows us a man, and a hurting man at that. A man who spends his life isolated, cut off from friends and family, living more like a rabid animal in a place where people bury their dead. You see, in Jesus' day, when it says that this man lived among the tombs, this area of Palestine, they would dig out holes in the side of cliffs and that's where they would bury the dead. And so this man Day and night, the gospel writers tell us, he just cries out in agony as these demonic powers have seized control of his life and taken him hostage. And he's in torment. He's in torment. And people don't know how to help this man. There is no home. There's no mental health program or a house For this man, and so he lives, untethered from anyone that loves him, this man, we're told, that he is so feared by his neighbors that he has spent the majority of his life on a chain and shackled like a rabid animal. And the source of this man's agony, his anguish, his misery is isolation, is supernatural in this story. That's why Jesus, in verse 30, he identifies the demon that's tormenting this man, and Jesus confronts this demon and says, What is your name? And the demon responds, Legion. And Luke tells us many demons had entered him. You know, in the Roman guard, a legion was made up of six, between 4,000 and 6,000 soldiers. So many, commentary, many commentators believe that this man was filled with thousands of evil spirits that are driving him to cut himself and live in agony. And Jesus sees this man and he has compassion on him. And with the same words that could calm the wind and the waves, he speaks a word, and this man is set free from the destructive powers that have ruined his life, that have made love an impossibility, that have shackled him and made him miserable. Now, as Westerners, I know what tends to happen when we read a story like this. We're fine and dandy with the part of the story where Jesus calms the storm but something within us recoils when we get to the bit where Jesus casts out demons in the New Testament. Granted, any story involving a naked guy, demonic spirits, and suicidal pigs is a lot to process. It's a lot to preach. (laughs) But I think The reason that something within us like recoils or holds these kinds of uh, stories up to skepticism is that I believe we have been discipled by our Western culture to prioritize and trust natural things over supernatural things. As a result, when it comes to things like fear or the maladies we see this man struggling with, we tend to explain and treat fear as a purely... Physiological, psychological malady that has no connection whatsoever to the spiritual realm, to supernatural powers at work in our world. Now, as somebody who has personally battled bouts of chronic anxiety, there's a time in my life where I suffered from panic attacks. One of the scariest storms that I've ever walked through is feeling completely out of control and struggling to breathe. If any of you have ever experienced that kind of fear, you know what I'm talking about. I am not saying for one moment that all fear and anxiety anxiety that you experience is inherently connected to Satan's attack or to some spiritual issue in your life. But I think it's unwise for, for us to take a lens that our Western culture gives which tends to explain everything through natural material physiological things and to dismiss a healing gift that this story affords, that we live in a world where there's a supernatural realm and there's powers that inflict misery upon humanity. Now, each time that I go to Myanmar, I feel like I'm immersed in a culture that is much more attuned to the presence of supernatural good and evil than we are. If you go to Myanmar, what you'll notice is that there are temples on every corner. It's a thoroughly Buddhist animistic culture, meaning that most people are right at home believing in the supernatural presence of spirits. Now, in Theravada Buddhism, that's been influenced by regional animism in Myanmar, what I've learned from partnering alongside Pastor Nopum and him teaching us about his culture is that fear is one of the biggest drivers in Buddhism in Myanmar. So if you go around Myanmar and you look at the temples, you see these giant temples where there's these icons and Buddha statues that are actually giant snakes. Now, I know for some of you, you're terrified of snakes, and so I didn't want to trigger any of you to, like, like throw these, like, big snake statues up there on the screen, but you need to know, they are freaky. And I asked Nopum my first time to Myanmar, I said, so what's up with all of these, like, snake statues Everywhere, we Americans, we don't like snakes and there seems to be like cobra snakes everywhere and worshipers there. And he informed me that in Buddhism that's been influenced by animistic religion in his culture, you have to appease the gods. So you you make offerings and you pray these prayers and make sacrifices with these gods to appease them, almost the way that you'd pay off the mafia so that they can protect you, but that they don't come after you. And it's motivated many times by fear. So what's beautiful is Pastor Pum, as we're partnering with him, is he's ministering to people that have come to, to faith in Christ and they're first-generation Christians. So they've come out of Buddhism and of their, out of their animistic religion that's inspired by fear, and now they're fully devoted followers of Jesus. So here's what's great, and I have some pictures. I got an invitation a few weeks ago. I was in Myanmar, and Pastor Nopum asked uh, myself and a pastor from Seattle that we're working with uh, from a church called Imprint to come and open up the Psalms and to teach uh, about 100 leaders how to encounter Jesus Christ in the Psalms, how to pray and use the Psalms uh, for ministry. And so as we opened up these psalms, it was one of the greatest privileges in my life to actually hear God's people in Myanmar, many of which are persecuted because of their faith in Jesus, share some of their favorite psalms. So we just asked a really simple question to get to know the students better. Throughout the week, we've just asked them, what's your favorite psalm? Without fail, as they shared their favorite psalms, they all had one theme in common, They all had to do with how the Lord set them free from fears. So they would quote by heart, Psalms like Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Or Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Or Psalm 3, Thou, O Lord, are shield about me, my strength and my glory and the lifter of my head. Though a thousand gather around and assail me and rise up against me, I will sleep in peace for you are with me. All of these Psalms were about how God is sovereign over their fears. And what's amazing is these disciples of Jesus, they're far less afraid than you and I are. They're living in a country right now where there's civil war breaking out. There's a modern-day genocide happening. Followers of Christ are persecuted, sometimes imprisoned, in different regions in Myanmar for publicly proclaiming Jesus Christ, and they're not afraid as we are. What's up with that? I think it's because we've become so normalized in our culture to the presence of fear that we don't know what a life delivered from fear even looks like. Thankfully, Luke shows us a portrait of a life liberated from all fear and from the power of the evil one. And look at this turnaround in the life of this man whose life was shackled and bound by fear. Look at it in verses 34 to 37. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. When a bunch of pigs commit suicide, people tend to talk about it. Then the people went out to see what happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who that had seen it, told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from there, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got in a boat and returned. Isn't it strange in this story that people are more at home with the presence of a naked demon-possessed man than the presence of Jesus Christ who's come to heal and set people free from the destructive powers of hell? People in the story, everyone's afraid of Jesus. Do you notice that? Everyone in the story, they're freaking out and they're actually afraid of Jesus. The disciples are afraid of Jesus. I mean, sure, they marvel and they say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But they don't know what to make out of him. The demons in this story, they're terrified of Jesus, and they're begging the Son of the Almighty God not to send them into the abyss. The crowd is afraid, and the townspeople beg Jesus to leave. The only person in this story that isn't afraid of Jesus is the man that used to be naked, afraid and possessed by demons. And now he's fearless. In fact, he's not afraid of anything anymore. Why would he be? Why would this man be? He's already been to hell and back, and along the way, he met a Savior whose love was fiercer than the storm that raged within him and cast out legions of demons that tormented him. What else Does he have to be afraid of? So this fearless disciple worships and sits at the feet of the one who set him free. To show us the gift to you and I this morning is that the remedy to your fears, to my fears, is the same gospel that this man believed. Folks, the remedy to the fears you're experiencing in your life is not to try harder or to ignore the storm that you're going through and pretend it isn't as bad. Here's the remedy. To save a tormented sinner who lived among the tombs, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, went to a cross and was laid in a tomb of his own. The destructive powers of hell that raged against this man, they poured out their worst on Jesus that day. On the cross on Calvary, and your Savior died and went to the grave. But then on the third day, this same Jesus, whom the wind and the waves obey, whom before demons tremble, he rose up from the grave, and folks, he's in your boat. And you're not alone. And Jesus has promised, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and I'm not asleep. I'm not asleep. Boy, if you believe that, if you've invited Jesus into your boat and your life, here's a couple things that will happen. Practically this morning, in light of this good news, here's a couple things you can do. First, name your fears. Name them. Don't allow them to just take root in your life and control and impact your worship, your work, your relationships, name them and turn them over to the one who calms storms and casts out fear. You're have an opportunity to do that this morning because we're going to have a prayer team here in a moment over to the side, and you can come, you can receive prayer this morning and name the fears that are weighing you down. But secondly, I think that we're given this story so that you and I would be moved to tell others of what God has done through his son Jesus in our lives. An interesting conclusion to the story. The story doesn't resolve the way that we would expect it to. This man who set free from his fears, he begs to go and to, to actually follow Jesus and get in the boat with him. And look at what happens in verses 38 and 39. Then the man from whom the demon had gone begged that he might be with them, but Jesus sent him away, saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Did you catch in that verse right there, if you look on the screen, Jesus tells this man, you can't get in the boat with me, but I'm going to send you out to be my disciple. I want you to go home, and I want you to tell people, your neighbors, your friends, your family, how much God has done for you. And the man immediately went out, and what did he do? He told everybody how much Jesus had done for him. This is one of the clearest ways that Luke, with an exclamation mark in his gospel, is saying Jesus is God. He's Lord over all. He's Lord over the storm, and he's Lord over your soul. So this morning, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here in a moment. We're going to be led and invited to come to the communion table this morning. I know that many of you came in, and the storm is raging, and my prayer today is that the same Jesus who spoke a word and calmed the storm would speak through the scriptures that you heard proclaimed in faith and that the Lord would speak to your fears this morning. So during this next song, as you go to the communion table, if you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're free to come to the table today to take the bread and the cup for perhaps, maybe for some of you, this is the first step of faith where today you actually are finding within your heart that you've been living shackled to fears and you want to be set free from something that you can't in your own power break. Come to the table and demonstrate before the Lord and others that you need a savior. Take the cup, take the bread, hold on to those elements. And after this next song, I'll come up and pray a prayer of faith uh, with us. Let me just pray this morning. Father, thank you so much. We just want to invite right now your Holy Spirit, Father, into this space. Your word tells us that where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom, and just believe that you have, Lord, some freeing purposes that you want to release in people's lives this morning. Lord, you want to expose and uproot some fears that have taken root um, in people's lives. And so just welcome, Lord, Um, your Holy Spirit, to reveal, reveal some fears, Lord, that you want to quiet and cast out. So we welcome you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship the Lord this morning.